Thank you, David. Appreciate that invitation and the privilege of being here in Rochester once again. We were here a few years ago, just about overnight, with David and the Genesee Church. We'd been ministering over in a neighboring community for a week. But we hear regularly about the things that are, that are going on up here through uh, related brothers. Many, if not most of you, know that uh, I'm one-fifth of a group of, of uh, Bible teachers who some years ago were joined by God together in a covenant relationship and uh, mutually submitting our lives to each other and our ministries. And out of that covenant and the ministries that we've had with many other people across the country, we have seen uh, a great number of fellowships and groups come into a like mind and into a like relationship all across the country. Uh, some of those uh, very people being a part of the gathering here tonight. I consider it a privilege to be here. And I want to talk tonight on a, a kind of a heavy vein, and I trust that uh, you will pray and have your ears and hearts open to receive the things that I'm going to say, because to teach on spiritual warfare isn't uh, simple, it isn't easy. I've been doing it now for about 15 years, various uh, forms, one form or another, of warfare or the deliverance ministry or casting out demons or whatever name you want to give it. Uh, and it always exacts a certain cost, a certain price. Uh, there's always a certain amount of opposition. In fact, uh, years ago when uh, about a half at least of my public ministry was given over to teaching in this vein, it, I no longer teach on it that much, partly because uh, so many groups and churches and fellowships across the country have taken up the warfare themselves, and some of the early plowing we had to do with this teaching is no longer necessary. But one of the things that used to happen back then, and still happens in a measure, is that when it was announced what I would be teaching, or if I was coming into a city to speak on this theme, usually several days, sometimes a week or two ahead of uh, the arrival, all hell would break loose in that town. Uh, all kinds of problems between couples and in churches and so forth, because uh, the devil anticipates uh, the note of victory which is coming when the Lordship of Jesus Christ is proclaimed and the Kingdom of God is proclaimed. And uh, not only that, uh, my wife and I and our children and our family would have to brace ourselves uh, for that time of ministry because we also endure a certain amount of hassling. And we have even in the last few days as we prepared to come up here, uh, nothing radical or drastic but just simply a kind of an agitation, a kind of pressure, a kind of heaviness that indicates that uh, we are indeed attacking an enemy who doesn't like to be disturbed. So I trust that uh, you'll be praying tonight as we speak on this theme and, uh, and also for tomorrow night's service which will be given directly over to teaching and ministry on the ministry of deliverance or casting out demons. We're not talking about that tonight. Uh, we're talking about a more sophisticated and a more cosmic form of spiritual warfare. And I want to try to combine two or three messages tonight in one, which is not going to be a real easy task. Basically, there's four things I'd like to accomplish in the time we have together tonight. The first is to describe the war, to take time to describe the war between the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, strategy for destroying the family, for attacking and destroying the family. The physical family 
is one of the greatest focal points of the enemy's attack in our day because Satan knows if he can destroy the family, he can, to the, to the extent that he succeeds in destroying family life or disrupting family life, to that extent he succeeds uh, uh, in preventing or postponing or negatively affecting the whole kingdom of God. Third thing I want to spend a little time talking about is Satan's strategy for destroying our nation. And uh, I'm going to be sharing with you some pages out of a book that I've been working on for some time. Uh, basically, the book has to do with Christian economics, or what I call Christian stewardship in crisis times. But the particular chapter, we're going to be sharing some things with you tonight, or out of a chapter which I've entitled Jezebel in High Places. So we trust that will be helpful to you. And then finally, to kind of turn the thing around and to end on a more positive note, we want to spend a few minutes talking about some positive steps for waging the war. Things that we need to do individually and corporately as the people of God in order to gird ourselves up to fight and to fight victoriously uh, in the warfare that we're in. If you have your Bibles with you tonight, turn with me to the fourth chapter of Luke. And uh, we want to read a, a verse of scripture there and then also in Ephesians to kind of set the stage for what we're going to be talking about concerning the war between the two kingdoms. Obviously, there are many other figures of speech or many other patterns that are appropriate in which to describe the Christian life or the Christian walk. But certainly one of the most valid and one of the most scriptural is to describe it in terms of a war between the two kingdoms. And this is... Uh, uh, revealed to us in the fourth chapter of Luke when we consider the temptations of Jesus. You remember how Jesus was tempted in, uh, or how Jesus was baptized in the river Jordan by John, and then he was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness and there tempted 40 days by Satan and then returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And we want to read from those temptations, specifying, uh, calling attention specifically to one which is particularly relevant to what we're talking about tonight. Beginning with, verse, with the first verse of chapter 4, and I'm reading from the New International Version. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. And the devil led him up into a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said unto him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. Uh, and it, so if you will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And I think we'll just end there because that's the, the scripture, because that's the verse particularly we want to call attention to. That in this second of the temptations, Jesus, uh, the devil took Jesus up into a high mountain. We don't really know whether this was something that happened physically, or Jesus actually ascended the mountain physically, or whether this was a spiritual experience in which he saw it in vision. It doesn't really matter, for our purposes at least. But anyway, the devil took Jesus up into a high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in an instant. And he said in essence to the Lord, you see all these? These are mine, and I can give them into anybody I want to because they've been delivered unto me, or they've been given unto me. The word in the Greek there, where it says, which is sometimes translated delivered, can also be translated betrayed. 
devil was saying, see all these kingdoms? They've been betrayed into my hands. Betrayed by what? Betrayed uh, way back during the beginning of, in the Garden of Eden when Satan was able to seduce Eve, and to, to deceive Eve, and to uh, lead to the, which led to the fall of Adam and Eve in that deception and the authority and the power which uh, had rested in Adam and Eve as they were being co-rulers or co-governors of the universe passed over into Satan's hands. The, the authority and the dominion and the power that had originally been given to them as co-governors along with God uh, of the garden and of the, the kingdom. So when Satan is saying here, all of these have been given unto me because they've been betrayed into my hands or to de delivered into my hands. The significant thing we need to note is that Jesus does not deny Satan's claim. All the kingdoms of this world are in the thrall of the devil. This is why over in 1 John we can read where the writer of 1 John says, we know that the whole world, that is this whole cosmic order of things, this present order of things, we know that the whole world lies in the bosom of the wicked one. We also know prophetically and, and existentially that uh, the kingdom of God is triumphant and that we already know how it's all going to come out that the kingdoms of this world are to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he'll reign forever and ever. We know Satan is a defeated foe. We know that he has been defeated by Christ's triumph on the cross. Nevertheless, the warfare continues because what has been given to us uh, doctrinally is not ours experientially. And so the warfare continues. Even though Satan is a defeated foe, the war between the two kingdoms uh, continues. So when Satan said to Jesus, all the kingdoms of this world are mine, the Lord did not deny his claim. Now, we also need to understand that when Satan pointed out all of these kingdoms, that he was not talking about real estate. He wasn't showing him rivers and trees and lands and subdivisions, that sort of thing. He was talking about peoples. He was talking about nations. He was talking about societies. The warfare between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan is for people. It's not for real estate. Uh, it's for nations and classes and cultures and societies. The, the battleground in this kingdom, but the, in the war between the two kingdoms, the battleground is us. For the minds and the hearts and the souls of men. Uh, we're talking about, when we talk about kingdoms, we're talking about governments. It's a struggle between the government of God and the government or the hierarchy of the enemy. Uh, there is, just as there is a kingdom of God or a government of God that is to be made manifest on the earth, which began to be made manifest with the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he followed John the Baptist preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. The very word kingdom implies government. But at the same time, Satan has a hierarchy. An invisible hierarchy, but you see the manifestation of it in the physical realm. If you want to know how Satan operates in the spiritual realm, all you have to look at is some kind of dictatorship uh, where the rule is by force and by violence and by intimidation and by torture and by cruelty and by death. Uh, in the physical realm, where you have those kind of despotic governments that history has been replete with, you're seeing a physical manifestation of the thing that exists in the spiritual realm. Satan's government uh, is formed of principalities and powers and thrones and dominions and rulers. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 6 and we'll read where Paul is describing uh, the warfare between the two kingdoms in a more specific way. Uh, when in the Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 he says, finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power and put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of the evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. So look at the terms that Paul is using here. When he says, uh, for our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but it's against government. It's against rulers. It's against authorities. It's against powers. Now, in addition, of course, it's also against evil spirits or evil forces. It's referred to here, the, the ministry of deliverance that we'll be talking about tomorrow night. But tonight we want to talk about the higher, more cosmic uh, form of the war which exists between the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And it's important for us to understand the nature of that war and to be aware that whether or not we like it, we're caught in it. Uh, the basic truth is, scripturally, is that we're either in one kingdom or we're in the other. There isn't any neutral ground. Now, a lot of good American people, a lot of good, well-meaning folks, even nominal church members, would just sort of like to stay neutral in this thing. They don't want to get real, relig re real religious and they don't want to be real bad or evil either. They just sort of like to go along doing their own thing, not being bothered too much by God or bothered too much by the enemy. But you can't do that. There isn't any middle ground. You're either in one kingdom or you are in the other. If you are not in the kingdom of God, that is, born again, brought out of darkness into the light of the light. Look it up and again in John 14 where he says, Behold the prince of this, when Judas is coming to betray him, he says, Behold the prince of this world cometh, but he has no power over me. Paul refers to Satan as the God of this world or age over in 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. So when we begin to talk about the two warring kingdoms and talk about a kingdom of darkness, we talk about the ruler of that darkness who is Satan. Who is Satan and who are we talking about? A lot of people, uh, especially early on in their spiritual quest or their search for scriptural truth, uh, they'll raise the inevitable question, well, why did God create Satan anyway? Well, why did God create the devil? Couldn't he saved himself and us a lot of trouble if he hadn't have done that? Well, the truth is that God did not create the devil. God did not create Satan. What God created was an angel of tremendous power and beauty and authority and dominion. Uh, Satan's original name was not the devil, or Satan, his original name was Lucifer. And Lucifer was one of the three great archangels that under God the Trinity under Father, Son, and Holy Spirit apparently served in a kind of a co-rulership of the universe. Now, the total scriptural uh, information concerning this is fairly sketchy, but there's enough there that we can put certain things to together. And that is that there were these three archangels or ruling princes, heavenly princes, that under the Trinity apparently helped govern or rule the universe. And there's scriptural indication that this particular one, Lucifer, was the most powerful of all of those. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14, and we're going to look just real quickly at a, at a couple of scripture passages that talk about what happened to him. Now these are two prophetic verses, one in, thank you, one in Isaiah 14, the other in Ezekiel 28. Beginning in Isaiah 14 with, with verse 12, we hear Isaiah basically prophesying or recounting in a prophetic vein 
the incident that took place far, be far back beyond the time when man was on the earth, somewhere back in heavenly history, perhaps even before uh, man was on the earth. We don't know in time span when it took place, but there was a war in heaven, in which time this heavenly prince, Lucifer, who my personal conviction is, is the fourth most powerful personality in the universe, after Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you have to understand that he is a created being. He is a part of God's creation. He was not eternal. He was not coexistent with the Trinity. He is a created being, like all angels are created beings. Nevertheless, according to the scriptural description, it seems rather obvious that he held the high and most exalted position of all of the created beings. Uh, and yet something happened that caused him to be cast down from his uh, throne, from his high, exalted place of rulership. And we read about that in Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel 28, beginning in Isaiah 14, chapter 12, uh, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. And the literal word there is Lucifer, our light bearer, our light bringer. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, O son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Now in the next following verses, there is a description apparently of the kind of thing that took place within the mind or spirit or heart of this created being that led to his rebellion. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. On the utmost heights of the sacred mountain, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. So we see revealed there really the cause, the thing that happened was that pride was born in this creature. And here in this brief passage, we see five times how he exalts his own will above the will of the one that created him. Not what God wanted, but what he wanted was what was the most important. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. He wanted to exalt himself, to put himself in the position of God, even above God. He wanted to be number one. Basically, it was an act of rebellion, born out of his pride. Turn over in Ezekiel 28, we see a little more of a uh, detail about how this must have transpired, this thing that, that took place uh, within the mind or the heart or the spirit of this uh, ruling angel. And this is in the 28th chapter of Ezekiel, beginning with verse 11, where Ezekiel says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre, and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Now, it's going to be obvious from the description that the king of Tyre we're talking about here is no real earthly ruler. It's a mythical, or rather, uh, a spiritual ruler, and you can tell by the descriptions it's referring to Lucifer. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. See, he's a created being. He's not eternal. You were anointed as a, as a guardian cherub. He is in a governing role, a guarding or ruling over perhaps a third of the universe. Uh, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. Being on the mountain of God is an indication of the extent of his authority. You walked among the fiery stones and you were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. King James says iniquity or rebellion was found in you. Uh, 
And through your widespread trade you were filled with violence and you sinned, so I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. And then in verse 17 there's a kind of a, a little picture of the description of actually what took place uh, within Lucifer that caused him to rebel. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. In other words, apparently this heavenly creature, most powerful, most beautiful, the one created being in whom God apparently had poured much of his creative genius and deposited much of his authority and power, as much as he had ever put in any created being, reflecting the wisdom and the holiness and the beauty of God himself, the highest and the holiest of all created beings. But somehow this heavenly creature became enamored with his own beauty, with his own worth, with his own intelligence, with his, the authority, the sphere of authority that had been given him. And he turned inward on himself and began to contemplate his own worth. And out of that, pride was born in him. It says, your heart became proud on account of your beauty. He contemplated his own handsomeness, his own attractiveness, like looking in the mirror and bragging on how pretty he was. Anyway, and out of that self-exaltation, pride was born. <coughs> Pardon me. And he says, uh, also, you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. Looking at his beauty and at his wisdom, pride was born, and then even his... His uh, wisdom became corrupted. One of the things that happens uh, when, we, when, we, when pride begins to rise un, in us is that we can't think straight. Our wisdom does become perverted. Our rebellion and our selfishness and all of those things which basically lead to sin pervert and prevent us from being able to think and respond to God and to be the kind of people we ought to be. So here was this magnificent heavenly creature somehow by his own will exalted his will above the Father's, contemplating his own beauty and power, tried to become number one, and because of his rebellion, was cast down out of heaven. And Jude and other passages talk about how a third of the angels apparently rebelled with him, uh, and all of this took place, transpired sometime before, apparently before man was on the earth, or before maybe even the earth was created. Jesus refers to this, uh, remembering his own pre-existent state with the Father. You remember when he sends the 70 out, two by two, to, to minister. And they come back rejoicing, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus recalling the fact that he himself in his preexistent state as the eternal Christ had witnessed this rebellion in heaven, said on that occasion, I saw Satan fall like lightning out of heaven. And it's a memory or a remembrance of how Satan, because of his rebellion, was cast down out of the heaven. And uh, because and, and of his... Of his defeat, Jesus re remembered that on the basis of the disciples who, using his name, had authority over evil spirits, coming back rejoicing in their victory. Jesus simply speaks out something which I'm sure they did not understand, particularly at the time. But he was reminding himself and them of the original casting down of Satan out of heaven. All right, uh, so much for a little scriptural background as to as to Satan's kingdom and Satan's thraldom. And he rules through, he has a government, uh, a spiritual government that rules by cruelty and by intimidation that Paul refers to as uh, in that chapter, those verses we read in Ephesians where he talks about uh, rulers and thrones and powers and dominions, uh, rulers of this present darkness and so forth. Paul is talking about the various levels of 
governing spirits and authorities, uh, evil angels that exercise influence over various parts of the earth. There's no way that we can be uh, too specific in this regard, but it is. it does help to realize that there are governing rulers or principalities of powers over certain portions of the earth. You remember the story of how, how uh, uh, Gabriel and Michael had to contend with against uh, uh, the evil prince that withstood the prayer, that withstood their bringing the answer to, uh, to Daniel's prayer. There was, over the prince of Persia, there was a ruling evil prince over the nation of Persia. There are ruling evil princes over countries and over cities and over states and over communities, at times over churches. There's a whole evil hierarchy that exists uh, that we don't have time to go a whole lot in detail about. Some of you know Brother Jim Moore, who's a fine Bible teacher, personal friend of mine. And some years ago, Jim, God gave Jim Moore a revelation about the ruling principalities and powers that were over certain great American cities. He even gave him the names of some of them uh, and what they did in that, uh, the rulership that they exercised. The, the ruling Principality of power over the city of New Orleans was revealed to him as the spirit of witchcraft. The one over the city of Miami was, uh, was uh, violence. The one over uh, Chicago was something else. I can't recall them all now, but in a, in a divine revelation, God gave this information to Jim Moore. And it does help us to understand that there is an evil government that is to be, that must somehow be thrust aside and must be dethroned in order for the kingdom of God to be fully manifested and fully ruling in the earth. Basically, what we're talking about, people, the basic question concerning our own destiny is, who is going to rule in the earth? Is it going to be God and the kingdom of God, or will it continue to be Satan and his kingdom? And it all comes down to that basic question of who is going to rule. Will it be God the Father with the Trinity, the triumphant Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit with the kingdom of God, or will it be Satan and his minions. Well, we already know how it's going to come out. But the end is not in doubt. The victory is not in doubt. But the timing and the way it's to take place and how successful we are in fulfilling our part of it depends on our own measure of faith and our own obedience and our own understanding of the nature of the war. All right, so Satan and his forces were cast out uh, of heaven sometime before Adam and before the creation as we read about it in Genesis this is with the establishment of the Garden of Eden because we know that the snake, the serpent, the devil in the form of the serpent was present in the garden uh, at the time when God created the Garden of Eden and put Adam and Eve there. Which brings us to the second thing we want to talk about tonight, which has to do with Satan's attack upon the family. And I want you to turn with me now back to the, the chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis. And we want to spend a little, just a brief time to give a little bit of, of a teaching concerning the strategy for Satan, the strategy that he's using to destroy families in America. According to statistics compiled by Brother Larry Christensen, who's uh, one of the fine Christian teachers and writers on the Christian family, I heard Larry some years ago come out with statistics that he had uncovered that said that uh, in 1960, 35% of the families in America, marriages in America, were heading for divorce. It was predicted would end in a divorce, and the divorce rate continued to increase, and if present conjectures or present projections were to continue, by the end of this decade, by the year 1990, 65% of the marriages in America would end in divorce. Uh, certainly the family is under far greater attack than any other, perhaps any other single institution. Uh, and it's because 
The family is the very heart of the church and is the very heart of the kingdom of God. Uh, the family was born in the mind of God. God decided that it, he would people the earth through families, and that it would be in the family that, that people would learn how to serve and to love and to give and to be ruled and to rule. And it's out of the family that all kinds of order and society and government and proper rule comes. And without proper uh, teaching, without proper indoctrination, without proper life in the family, without families that are in divine order, uh, to serve as role models for children and for the rest of the world without families operating the way they should be operating, there will never be the kingdom of God established fully in the earth. And so the devil knows that, so he's bringing an unprecedented attack against the family. So I want to take just a few minutes to talk about how Satan disrupts order in the family because it boils down basically to a lack of understanding between husbands and wives about why they were created men and women and how they were created and how they are to function in their role as a man or as a woman, as a husband or as a wife, or as a father or as a mother. It only take a few minutes to do this, but it's so important to the overall picture of spiritual warfare that we dare not pass it by. Basically, the scriptures make it plain that when God fashioned, uh, when God fashioned, created the world and all of the creatures in it, made the Garden of Eden, then God created man and put him in the garden as a co-ruler or as a co-governor. He gave him authority or power or dominion uh, over all the earth. We read about this in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 when God says, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, and over all the creatures that move uh, along the ground. And so God created man in his own image, and in the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. So in reading the creation story, we understand, first of all, that God created man, took some of the dust of the earth, fashioned it into a man, breathed the breath, the physical form of a man, breathed his own spirit or breath of life into man, creating man's spirit. And then where man's spirit and body came together, the soul was created, or the human personality. And so man became a living personality or living soul. We don't have time to go into detail about that other than to say that having created man, God put man in the garden to rule all the creation. He said, God, he said, Adam, you're to rule all of this. I'm giving you power and authority and dominion over all the creation. And one of the things we must remember, remember about God is that when he gives authority, he himself will, author will honor the authority that he's given. So in honoring that authority, as God then made the other creatures in the earth, he brought them to Adam to, for Adam to classify or to name. This is in deference to the authority that he's given Adam. God didn't make anything that he himself would name. After creating it, he brought it to Adam to see what Adam would call it. This is an evidence of God honoring the authority that he gave to Adam. Now, God's own authority had to be evident in Adam's life, and the way that took place was that God put a forbidden tree in the garden. It was a tree of the life, and there was also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in which Adam was was commanded to leave alone. Don't eat of that tree, Adam. He said, because if you do, in that day you'll die. So that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that forbidden tree, was the representation of God's own authority over Adam's life. The way authority is made manifest in a person's life is by what is prohibited. In other words, the only way you can know you're under authority is that there's some things you can't do without violating authority. If God hadn't put some limitations on Adam, there would... He would, there would have been no authority excellent. He and Eve would have just been free to exercise all kinds of 
license and everything else with no restrictions. There would have been no way to grow, no way to mature, no way to learn obedience unless there was some kind of authority. So that tree represented the authority uh, over Adam's life. And God gave Adam a knowledge of his will and of his authority even before Eve was created. Then God created Eve and brought her to Adam and they two were joined together in the first marriage ceremony and they were ruling the garden together, ruling the universe together. God made Adam first, gave him authority, then created a helpmeet for him and put Eve under his authority, uh, under his care and under his protection to help him in his governing. God made man first. That goes with having authority. He made the woman second. That goes with being in submission or a subordinate to the one who was first. This is simply the way God uh, created. God had in mind that man was to rule and that it gave him a help me to help him in his care and in his rulership. The very truth is, folks, uh, and you ladies, I've, uh, it's not real easy to say perhaps, but basically you have to admit the Bible is a male chauvinist book. It just comes right down to that. It is. Uh, the Bible makes it plain that man is to rule and man is to have authority. And the proper place for the woman is under the protection and the covering of that male authority. Now, I've said all that to say this, that because God has set it up that way, that man is to rule and to protect his wife and she's to, to operate with the gifts and the sensitivities and the talents and the ability she has under that kind of protection and under that kind of authority, God gave each one, the man and the woman, the kind of characteristics, physical and emotional and mental, uh, to fulfill the role that, that each is to perform. And since, and of course that being true, if God made man to have authority and then he made woman to be under authority and to function in the earth in that way, in cooperation with God, then the devil's uh, goal is always to get us to do just exactly the opposite of what God created us to do. And so it would be the devil's task then in order to drive a wedge into that first divine structure of the family as the way it was divinely ordained, uh, the devil's responsibility or his task or his plot or plan or strategy would be to do, to cause a reversal of roles and to have both Adam and Eve to do just the opposite of what they were called for to do or they were designed to do or they were created to do. And this is what we uh, find Satan doing in chapter 3 when he appears uh, at the door. Before we talk about that, though, I want to take just a couple of minutes to, to, to reinforce the thing I was saying about the, uh, about the differences between male and female, how they're given the both men and women are given the kind of characteristics that, and qualities in their lives that attributes, we could say, that equip them for their role. And I want just to list about a half a dozen uh, uh, of these attributes contrasting the male attribute and the female attribute. Now, I don't know whether you want to call this sociology or anthropology or psychology or some other kind of ology. It's just plain old common sense, and you'll understand it as we read it, as we talk about them. The thing is, you know, folks, a lot of times instinctively we have a greater understanding of these things than we do scripturally or theologically. We like to get into theological arguments about there's no male and female in Christ and, all of, and misapply a lot of these other scriptures that have uh, as if we wanted to obliterate the divine distinctions that have been made between man and woman. It's true there's no male and female in Christ, as Paul talks about in Galatians, but he's not talking about sexual identity there. He's talking about our inheritance in Christ. We are equal in our inheritance in Christ. But equal value or equal worth does not imply equal function. 
and there are there are permanent differences in our role and in our function. All right, so we want to list some of these male and female characteristics, and then we're going to come back and see how Satan, uh, in this divine warfare, how Satan drove a wedge into the original family and created all the havoc that we're still having to wrestle with the effects of today. Uh, here are some male characteristics and some female characteristics contrasted. God made man physically strong. He made the woman physically delicate. Now, that doesn't mean a woman doesn't have physical strength, but it's a different kind of strength. To put it bluntly, when I say God made man strong and the woman delicate, it's easier for a man to take a 100-pound bag of feed and seed and throw it on the back of a truck than it is for a woman. Now, it doesn't mean a woman couldn't do it, but it means she runs a greater risk of physical injury to herself because, because her physical being is not constructed to do that sort of thing. Basically, the woman does not have the same measure of physical strength a man does. So this is what we say when we say a man's physically strong, a woman's physically delicate. Now you'll see these male characteristics go with his responsibility as the breadwinner, as the protector of the family, as the one who has to fight the battle to keep the enemy away from the door, as the caveman with a club who's going to hit the dinosaur on the head. Uh, you, if you were to see a cartoon, a caveman cartoon, that showed the, the big old burly bearded caveman back in the ba back of the cave with the little kitties quaking with fear while his little delicate wife stood up with the front of the cave with a big club trying to hit the dinosaur on the nose, we'd know something was out of order. That's just not the way it ought to be. It's the man who's been given the role of protector. It's the man who's responsible for the welfare of his being. It's the man, well, we'll go on with some of these other characteristics. The man's physically strong, the woman's physically delicate. The man is aggressive by nature, that is, he initiates. The woman is, by nature, is passive, that is, she tends more to respond. She's submissive. Perhaps a romantic term would be that she's demure. But anyway, when you talk about a man being aggressive, that goes with his masculine role. When we, you speak about a woman being aggressive, nobody likes to hear that. The idea of, of, a, of an aggressive woman, somehow that doesn't fit the picture of proper femininity as we basically would know or understand it. So the man is aggressive. The woman is passive or demure, or she respond, more responds rather than initiates. The man is tough. That goes with his role as protector. A woman is described, the female is described as tender. The man is intellectually dominant. That is, he is dominated and controlled by what he thinks. A woman is dominated by her emotions. She is emotionally dominant. That is, she is concerned and responds more in terms of what she feels. And men and women, if you could just understand that one point, you husbands and wives tonight, if you could understand those two basic differences, which are God-given characteristics. They're not weaknesses. They're not faults. They're characteristics. And if you can understand that about one another, you'd go a long way toward solving some of your marital problems. Uh, you women sometimes think your husband's unfeeling. My husband doesn't understand me. He's just not sensitive to the things that I think he ought to be sensitive about. That's right. God didn't make him that way. God made him to think his way through things. He responds more with his intellect and with his mind. And the man will say to his wife, I don't see how you can feel like that or why you feel like it. Why can't you think about it the way I think about it? Because she's a woman. She doesn't, she's not made to think that way. A woman, what she thinks arises out of what she feels. She leads with her emotions. God made women that way. Thank God he did. That goes with their role of being a wife and a mother and a rearing the children in the home and with the qualities of tenderness and compassion and all the rest that are supposed to operate under male covering. So when a man tells his wife, well, I don't see why you can't see this the way I see it, she never will. 
and sometimes because she's coming from another point of view. She's coming from another basis, out of her emotions. Alice and I go through this many times, as many a husband and wife do. I've had to learn at times the hard way that when my wife feels something, that very feeling, another one of the characteristics basically with that is that we're talking about is that along with those feelings and emotions, there is a sensitivity there. There is a spiritual sensitivity that women have that men often don't have. This is one of the reasons why women respond so much more quickly to the gospel or to the teaching about the baptism or other spiritual things. They are much, it's much easier for them to tune in to the things of the Spirit because the man by very nature, his intellectual, rational approach to things, he questions and he tends to doubt and he wants to examine and he wants to mull it over. It goes with his role as the protector of the family. He doesn't want to be deceived. He doesn't want to be tricked. Well, God gives a man that characteristic because it goes with his role of the protector of the family. The reason he makes the woman trusting and intuitive and emotionally dominant is because he made her to function in a situation where she would be protected from deception and from abuse and all the rest by the covering of her husband who could deal with the enemies at the door. So God makes the woman trusting and intuitive and sensitive and makes the man intellectually dominant, wary, suspicious. And so many a time I've learned the hard way that when I'm thinking about something in some way or trying to interpret or evaluate a situation and Alice will say to me, honey, I don't feel good about that. And that'll make me mad. Because I don't see anything in it not to feel good about, you know. But she's picking up on something. And I've learned through the years, time and again, that I better give heed, especially in the sense when everything's working right between us and I'm properly covering her and we're moving in the spirit pretty good. I need to trust her intuition. Because God will speak to her through me. And if I say, oh, honey, you just don't understand. You let me handle this. Well, I go on my own sweet way. I'll get in trouble. There'll be something happen. And I'll realize later on I should have listened to the caution of my wife. Now, I say that along with this. You need to understand that, that if things, if we're not in a good place, or if she's not in a good place spiritually, if she's anxious, or she's concerned, or I'm not looking after her needs, and she's fearful, then that's another story. I'm, I don't respond on that basis. I realize that she's speaking out of a fear, out of insecurity that I'm probably responsible for. But when thing, all things being equal, when we're doing well, I sure better listen to my wife's intuition because this is one of the ways God reaches us, or reaches us men. And men, we need to understand that our wives are always going to approach things from the standpoint of their emotions. And women, you need to understand your husband's going to think his way through things. And it's not that he's insensitive. God gave him a good, rational mind, and he has a decision-making role in the family. And so that's dominant in his life. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't have emotions or feelings. And men, we need to be sensitized in our feelings and emotions. Incidentally, these, these very characteristics, these contrasting characteristics we're talking about, the last two, God makes man independent, makes the woman dependent. God makes the man wary and vigilant, makes the woman trusting. All of these things that we've listed, the strong male characteristics and the predominant female characteristics, uh, if a man was totally, totally, totally male and the woman was totally, totally, totally female without any relief from that, uh, it wouldn't work out right. So what happens is that along with the strong, dominant male characteristics, God will put in a little bit of feminine gentleness in there or tenderness in a man. And when that happens, that doesn't detract from his masculinity. It just makes it all the more real and all the more attractive. When you see a big old macho man who's strong and manly in every way, but along with that, there's a little bit of gentleness and a little bit of tenderness. That doesn't make him any less a man. It makes him a better man. By the same token, you'll see, if he didn't have that, the man would end up a brute. He'd be brutal. 
and some men are. On the other hand, you'll see this lovely little feminine creature who has all of these beautiful feminine qualities, but along with it, there'll be some toughness in there, which is basically a masculine trait. But that toughness in that beautiful little feminine creature makes her all the more desirable and makes her femininity all the more appealing. Without it, she'd just melt down into a puddle of sentimentality. See, so God puts a little bit of those contrasting things in each one of us. Okay, so these are characteristics that are God-given to help us fulfill our roles. God gives these qualities to the man to make him tough, strong, wary, vigilant, suspicious, uh, intellectually dominant, to go with his role as the leader of the family. God makes the woman gentle, trusting, tender, uh, emotionally dominated to go with her role as wife and as mother and as the one who rears the children. And all of those beautiful feminine qualities to be operated and to be manifested under the strong protection of male authority. That's simply the way God created it. All of that to bring us to Genesis chapter 3 to show you how the devil wants us to do just the opposite of what God wants us to do. So, here's the picture. Adam and Eve are at home in the garden. And they're home in the garden. After a hard day's work, Adam's there in the house. Got his feet propped up on the table reading the newspaper, watching television or something. Scripture says the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, so here's the picture there in the garden and the knock comes at the door and Adam says, honey, I'm tired, you get it. So she goes to the door and opens it and there's the snake. Notice how the serpent comes to the woman. He doesn't go to the man. Why? Because his intent is deception. And he doesn't want to tackle the man who has the responsibility, who would respond or should respond intellectually with wariness and with vigilance and with suspicion and with masculine strength. So he goes to the woman who's innocent, trusting, demure, uh, uh, easily beguiled. And so this is the one he engages in conversation. Now there's two mistakes here. Both Adam and Eve make them. The uh, first thing uh, is when, when Eve turns to Adam and says, Honey, it's the snake. Well, Adam should have put down his newspaper, switched off the television, gone up the door, pushed his wife aside and said, Honey, I'll handle this critter. This is no job for a woman. This is my job. But he didn't do that. Or as Ern Baxter is fond of saying, Eve, the other thing Eve could have done, she could have slammed the door and said, My husband doesn't let me talk to strange snakes. But she didn't have the wisdom to do that either. So what happens is, is this reversal of roles. Here we see... Trusting little Eve, with her dominated by her emotions and her tenderness and her compassion, all, she goes to the door and she assumes the leadership of the home. She gets into the decision-making role. And here's Adam retreating into the passive feminine role, letting his wife deal with the enemy of the household. And so Eve, the, the serpent talks to Eve and he deceives her. He says, you know, I, all those beautiful trees in the garden, I suppose they really taste great, especially that one over there in the middle of the garden. She says, oh, well, there's something about that tree I don't really like. She says, God says we can eat of all. Satan said, first of all, I understand you can eat of all of these trees. She says, all but one, that one that you're pointing at. And he said, God says we can't eat of that one. If we, we can't even touch it, she says, lest we die. Now let me raise an interesting question for you. How did, since God gave to Adam long before Eve was created, since God put Adam in the garden and told him not to eat of the fruit, how did Eve even know about it? God entrusted to Adam the revelation of his will for the family. He told Adam and later on Adam told Eve. He said, honey, long before you appeared on the scene, when God gave me instructions about how the whole thing was to run and operate, there's this one tree he said, don't eat it. God said, don't eat it. I'm telling you, honey, leave that tree alone. 
But this has been gnawing at Eve. There's something in us that when the restrictions are placed upon us, it's the forbidden things that are the most attractive. We, when our kids were small, we'd leave home for an evening or something. We'd say, kids, mother and daddy are going out for this meeting. You stay home. Now you can raid the refrigerator, but leave the chocolate pie alone. That's for dessert for Sunday dinner. Now what is here is most attractive in the refrigerator of all the things that are in there? The chocolate pie, right. It's the forbidden fruit. So Eve was already fussing in her mind about this fruit. I wonder why God told my husband that we weren't eating that fruit. And that frustration's there. Eve, the devil knows it. So he calls attention to that tree. And she says, yeah, that's a tree, all right. We can't eat it. We can't even touch it. God didn't say they couldn't touch it. She just built her own, you know, frustration out of that. So then uh, Adam, the, the, the devil, proceeded to say, well, I'll tell you the real reason is that if you eat of that tree, that's a shortcut to spiritual maturity. You'll become like God, knowing good. That's why God doesn't, and that's why your husband doesn't want you to eat of that tree. You'll be the number one spiritual woman in the neighborhood. You'll start more prayer groups than anybody else. You'll have your own ministry. If you'll just go ahead and do it this way, sister, this is a shortcut to holiness. And Eve says, I knew it. I knew my husband was holding out on me. So what happens is she's deceived. So she takes the fruit and she turns to Adam and says, Here, Adam, don't say anything. Just do what I say. Eat. She sticks the fruit in it. Yes, dear, whatever you say, dear. I'll eat. So here she is in the decision-making role. And he, Adam's in that little passive feminine role, standing there watching the devil make a fool of his wife. And Satan, essentially what I'm saying here, people, about warfare is that the devil succeeded in that reversal of roles. And he still does it today, time and time again. In good Christian families, there will be men and women both saved, baptized in the Holy Ghost, speaking in tongues, prophesying, but it will be the woman who's wearing the spiritual pants in the family. She'll be making decisions. She's the one that has the ministry. Husband, nice little quiet guy going along with whatever his wife wants to do. Things out of order. And then wonder why it's so easy for, for a family to be, get into some sort of spiritual deception in that. Now, it's not that God won't bless and use people when they're not in divine order. But it's just that the divine order is missing, and that's not what God intended. God did not intend woman to rule and for the man to be in that passive role. God intended the man to rule and, and to have divine order in the home for the man to rule and the woman to be subject to his rulership and his authority and together as a team uh, to rear and to raise their family and to serve in the kingdom of God. And so much of the problems that exist in the body of Christ today can be, can be uh, pointed, directed right back to a lack of order in the home. Divine order in the home. Now, the thing I found time and time again in my own life and counseling and ministry is the fact that, that uh, there are families like this. So many times when the woman is dominant and vocal and powerful in the Lord and uh, aggressive spiritually and, and in kind of a role of leadership, almost inevitably the man will be a sweet little quiet guy who won't open his mouth. And it's very, very difficult when a situation is like that, even when both love the Lord, it's very difficult for a woman to begin to back off from that once she sees the truth, and for the husband, once he sees the truth, begin to, to assert himself and to move into leadership in the family that God intends. And men, you need to remember that God held Adam responsible for what happened to his wife. When it came time for accounting, God, and they were hiding in the garden with clothes out of fig leaves because they knew they were naked. They'd fallen from their innocence and grace. God came walking to the garden in the cool of the day. He called Adam and said, Adam, where are you? He held Adam accountable. He didn't go first to Eve. So God, men, holds us responsible for what happens with our wives. He holds us responsible to be the leaders in our own homes. And the whole family in America today is under tremendous attack. Not only families outside the church or the body of Christ, but within the church. A great, powerful need for divine order. Basically, the, 
the spiritual powers that are extant in this thing are described in the scriptures in the story of Jezebel, which is going to lead us into our third discussion in a moment. The story of Jezebel and Ahab. Uh, there is a, there, the Jezebel principality, which I think is one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful, satanic principality we'll describe in a moment. But concerning individual people's lives, there is a Jezebel spirit and there is an Ahab spirit. And it is the Jezebel spirit that will affect a woman, even a good Christian woman, to make her want to rule and to reject male authority and to assert herself and to make the decisions and to put down her husband. And it is the Ahab spirit in a man that is weak and petulant and selfish and craven that is willing to let his wife do that. And so often in marital counseling and when we're praying for people for their problems or for deliverance, we'll uncover those influences. I'm not all saying, saying it's always a demon. Many times it is. But there is a Jezebel influence uh, that works at wives. And there is an Ahab influence that works in husbands that makes them weak and craven and willing to be led around by their wives and to let their wives make the decisions and so forth. And time and time again we expose it. And when it's dealt with and when the Christian couple will see it and repent, there can be great change in the marriage. Other times when it's revealed, they just get real angry and upset and stalk off and go on with their problems. We're not wrestling flesh and blood. We're wrestling principalities and power, powers and thrones and dominions and rulers of this present darkness and hosts of wicked spirits in heavenly places. And the devil is out to destroy the family uh, by destroying the divine order in the home. Now, on to this thing about Jezebel. It's not just in terms of spiritual influence over people or over families. I'm personally convinced that the Jezebel principality is one of the most powerful things that exists over our whole country today. There is a tremendous satanic Jezebelian influence that's being exerted over our nation, which is one of the things which is leading us, uh, which has led us so such a far peace down the road away from the freedom and the, uh, and the vision that we had when our nation was born led us toward increasing bureaucracy and heavy taxation and uh, radical moves toward socialism that are so extant in our country today. And I know this is a pretty sudden departure from what we've been talking about, but I trust that you'll see the relationship as we go on because I want to take time now or we're going to pay th through it through renewed inflation which will eventually lead to hyperinflation which will also lead to some sort of economic collapse. Just as sure as God put us on this earth and set spiritual principles and rules for us to live by, we're going to have to pay the price for the folly of our nation and our society and our world in terms of economics. We are heading toward a time, coming into a time of uh, a really grave time where some big adjustments are coming. I don't say that to instill fear, but just merely to point out the fact that uh, Christians need to be ready and we need to see that as a backdrop for what God's doing in the kingdom of God and to help usher in the day of the kingdom and bring mankind to a point where we will not be so dependent upon the things of this world. Because much of the prosperity which the generation, uh, most people alive here tonight, most of you in the audience, aren't old enough to remember the Depression. I was just a, a boy in the Depression, but I was old enough to know, to see the effects of it uh, on our neighbors and our society. And I have some memories of it. Uh, most of you are too young to recall that, but just bear in mind that history has a way of repeating itself and that there is a history of economic cycles uh, through our culture and through our society that are going to repeat themselves and within it we're going to see and find and experience a certain amount of the judgment of God. Thank God we're in the kingdom of God where we're going to have protection, where we have access to resources. 
uh, that will help us in it. Anyway, though, I want to take it just a, in the, finally now to read rather quickly just a few thoughts out of this uh, chapter on Jezebel in high places. And then we want to end by just charting for you a th- few steps to take to, to uh, set up a strategy to combat Satan in these various aspects of warfare. Now, we're not taking time to read in 1 Kings uh, all of the story about uh, Ahab and Jezebel, but you're aware that Ahab was king of Israel, and the scripture says about Ahab that he was more evil than any king Israel ever had. Not only did he engage in evil practices, worship the wrong, but he married Jezebel, who was the daughter of a Baal priest, and who herself was a a high priestess in the Baal cult. And uh, the things the scripture has to say, both about Jezebel and about Ahab, will make it plain to you how despicably God considered, how despised these two characters were uh, in the scriptures and make us aware, out of that may make us aware of, of the significance of what we're dealing with in the spiritual realm. Historically, the name Jezebel has come to represent all that is unholy and seductive and wicked and ambitious and cunning and selfish in the female of the human family. And less well recognized but equally important is the fact that King Ahab, Jezebel's husband, exhibited all the weak and craven and petulant and immature qualities so paralyzing to effective masculine leadership which inevitably gave opportunity to the rise of Jezebelian wiles. And in my years as a minister and Bible teacher, I've counseled hundreds of couples in marital difficulty. I've repeatedly recognized the influence of what I call the weak retiring Ahab spirit in husbands and the strong dominating Jezebel spirit in wives, and these spirits are at work to destroy marriages and families. And with some couples, the exposure of those conflicting demonic influences brought repentance and deliverance and redemption to the marriage, and in other cases, the exposure brought only hysterical anger or stubborn denial to an already hellish union. And when we consider that at the heart of the wealth warfare between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan lies the fundamental question, who will rule in the earth? Jezebel's naked defiance of God and her total rejection of the responsibilities inherent in the role of wife and mother are all the more sinister. And it's no exaggeration to say that the spirit of witchcraft and female domination exemplified in Jezebel represents Satan's power at its least recognized, most misunderstood, yet deadliest form. And everything the spirit of Jezebel stands for militates against personal virtue and righteousness and against the principles of godly family life which helped shape the faith of us and our founding fathers and the spiritual and economic principles which our nation has lived by. And the biblical account of the life of this notorious female reveals some vital insights which may help us identify and resist the increasing influence of the Jezebel principality in our society and in our church and in our government. And then I go on to talk about, uh, scripturally, about who Jezebel is, how she's the daughter of this priest and how God... Uh, how Ahab marries her, obviously out of the will of God, and how she then takes his authority to kill the priests of God and to the prophets of God and to feed 850 of her own Baal priests at the king's table, and how she got on Elijah's case and threatened to destroy him. And the interesting thing about what the scriptures say about this character, Jezebel, is enough really uh, to put the fear of God in us. It says, the scripture, Jezebel and Ahab, the scriptures flatly state that Ahab, whom God held directly responsible for his wife's sins, this is a quote out of 1 Kings 16, did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Now, what I want you to see and understand with me is, is how significant these powers are. This Ahab power or principality or spirit 
and the Jezebel spirit, the Ahab spirit, which, which is meek and craven and petulant and which is just the opposite of what God wants men to be. And the Jezebel spirit, which is powerful and domineering and rebellious and cunning and wicked and witchy and all the rest, which is just the opposite of what God wants women to be. And how, how God considers these two characters or these two personalities. Both Elijah and Elisha gave dire predictions of God's judgment against Jezebel and prophesied her violent end. And here's a, a real graphic quote. It says, The dog shall eat Jezebel in the portion of Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And the third point is that Jehu, who ascended to the throne of Israel after the death of Joram Ahab's son-in-law, was commissioned by God to destroy every blood descendant of Ahab and Jezebel. God was so provoked by that royal family that he decreed that their, their bloodline would be obliterated from history, that there would be no survivors of that family. That's how heinous their acts and their personalities were in the eyes of God. Scripture says thou to, to uh, Jehu, God says, Thou shalt smite the house of Ahab thy master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel, for the whole house of Ahab shall perish. Now I'll tell you, anytime God is so provoked to anger that he's going to wipe somebody out completely, it ought to impress upon us the significance of those influences or of those uh, personalities or those powers. So, uh, going to say in here that, that what happens is, of course, that after uh, Ahab dies and his son ascends to the throne and dies and his second son ascends to the throne and dies, Jezebel survives all of that. And even when Jehu finally comes to destroy her, she paints, to find her, she paints herself up and tries to seduce him in order to spare her own life. But he calls for servants that are loyal to God to throw her down off the balcony and she's thrown down out of her uh, castle apartment onto the pavement and is killed and the dogs come and devour her body. And the whole ignominious story, her whole end is just, you know, horrible to contemplate. The point I'm making is though that if any other human being, including Judas Iscariot, was held in greater scorn than Jezebel, the scriptures fail to record it. In fact, the whole biblical story of Jezebel, her whoredom, her witchcrafts, and her defilements, during all of the story in the scriptures, I discovered this in my study of it some months ago, not one time did God or any of his prophets or any of his servants ever afford her the dignity of direct conversation. While divine strategy was planned against her abominations and divine judgment was pronounced against her person, neither God nor Elijah nor Elisha nor Jehu nor a single servant of God ever spoke to her directly. It was as if God kept his back turned in revulsion toward her the whole of her miserable lifetime. And this astonishing fact should be remembered when we consider the spiritual warfare against particular the particular satanic principality or power that Jezebel represents. And as believers who know we've been given power over the enemy, we should avoid all attempts to challenge Jezebel directly, as we might some lesser evil power. Rather, wisdom dictate, dictates that like God's servants of old, we pray and work diligently against the influence of Jezebel in our church and in our society and in our government, but leave both direct confrontation and final retribution in the hands of God. Uh, we should remember Jude's warning about confronting supernatural powers. You remember that strange little story in Jude where it says that the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a railing accusation or a slanderous accusation against the devil, but it said, The Lord rebuke you. 
There's something about having the kind of healthy respect uh, that we need to have about Satan and about Satan's most powerful uh, angels and servants. That while we don't need to fear and we don't need to be afraid when we do warfare, engage in warfare, we need to plot our strategy carefully and do it with utmost respect for the power and authority uh, that is there. Well, uh, I want to just list for you very briefly now what's happening in our nation in, in three basic ways that the Jezebel principality and power is costing us our freedom as a nation. These are Jezebel's tactics. This, and then I'll talk about a scriptural, the scriptural picture and then what's happening in our society. The first tactic that the devil is after through Jezebel's tactics is to the destruction of our godly heritage and alienation of our nation from our moral and spiritual roots. Now, we've already seen, uh, talked about how Jezebel being out of uh, the daughter of a, of a Baal priest uh, was also herself a priestess and uh, how she married into Ahab's family and then uses, used Ahab, who was the king, used his power and his authority and his influence to kill the prophets of God, to subsidize the Baal prophets, and it, later on to destroy Naboth, who an innocent working man who had a vineyard that the king desired uh, and tried to destroy Elijah and his ministry. All of this she did using the authority and the power of Ahab who was the king. And uh, Jezebel works in our own country today, in our own government today in the same way. Her strategy is to secure strong influence in government and from there to plot the destruction or at least the neutralization of the servants of God, Christian leadership in the church, while subsidizing at the federal larder her own prophets, the advocates of atheistic socialism and secular humanism, and all the while working relentlessly to separate our nation, the people of our nation, from their historic moral and spiritual roots. If you're doing much study about what's been happening in our government in the last few years and how, how far we've come down the road towards socialism, away from the democratic principles upon which our nation was founded and the godly men who founded it, it's an appalling thing to contemplate. It happens so subtly and so continually that especially younger people are not as much aware of it as some of us who have lived longer. Nevertheless, there is this continuing influence to destroy America because of her spiritual destiny that she had in God, to rob her of her inheritance and to blind the minds of this present generation to, to God's purposes for us as a church and as a nation. Persecution of the church by the government is just one example. In recent years, the government has increased increasingly assume positions of hostility to the church, interference in religious matters, the arbitrary closing of Christian schools, which fail to comply with unconstitutional regulations, increasing harassment of the churches by government officials and by the Internal Revenue Service. Our own church in, in Mobile, which I'm an elder, just a few months ago completed a two-year period of intense harassment and investigation by the IRS in which uh, they brought all kinds of forces and powers against us to try to, to approve things that we were supposedly guilty of and weren't. It was a two-year struggle which included a six-weeks on-the-site audit by IRS investigators, sometimes three examiners there at one time, in which they intimidated and questioned and harassed and threatened the leadership of the church and demanded all kinds of information that they were not entitled to. It took months and months of work and effort by a lot of our church staff to to have to cooperate with that, and in the end cost us over $100,000 in resources simply to prove that we weren't guilty of anything and just to prove that we were a legitimate church. 
And many other churches and groups are going through the same thing today. You know what that is? It's the Jezebel influence in government that's out to destroy the prophets and the ministers of God in the church. The U.S. government has for the most part made an unholy alliance with the spirit of Jezebel like King Ahab made. And most of our leaders have abandoned the vision of the nation as a nation under God with a unique spiritual destiny to embrace or at least condone pagan and anti-Christian and socialistic postures totally alien to our heritage. I want to I'll stand here tonight thanking God for President Reagan. I wrote this before Reagan was, uh, became president. He's not able to do everything he'd like to do, but it, I'm grateful tonight for the man we have in a, as president. He may not succeed much more to do much more than he's been able to do up to now, but thank God God heard enough of our prayers to put a man in who was Christian, who did believe that the government was heading the wrong way and has done everything in his power to try to reverse it. We're not going to have time to go through all of these. Let me just say that the first one was to alienate us from our roots. The second one has been the destruction of the family. You know how uh, uh, Jezebel uh, allowed the destruction of her own children, went against the, uh, God's purposes for her own husband, just abandoned her own family to serve Baal and to, to promote the, uh, uh, the Baal priests at the, and to destroy the priests of God. She represented all the opposite qualities that we would come to understand as being desirable for a, a godly woman, a wife, and a mother. And uh, those same principles are at work in government to destroy the family. Most notably in, our, in what we call the, uh, the welfare program. I want to just quote for you uh, a couple of quotes out of uh, uh, a book by, a quote, first of all, out of a book by uh, uh, George Gilder, who wrote a book called Wealth and Poverty in which he points out the fallacy of the welfare program, the federal welfare programs, and what they're doing to just simply to destroy uh, a manhood in America and to, to undermine the role of the husband and the father. And he's been talking about the virtues, the good godly virtues that have to be in a man if he's to be the breadwinner and the head of his family and the respect and the honor that he needs. And then he talks about how welfare uh, being doled out just undermines all of that. He says, nothing is so destructive to these male values as the growing and imperious recognition that when all is said and done, his wife and children can do better without him. He's talking about the family that's had to go on welfare and how it destroys the husband. The man has the gradually sinking feeling that his role as provider, the definitive male activity from the primal days of the hunt through the industrial revolution and on into modern life has been seized from him. In other words, government welfare emasculates the male. The policy of depriving poor families of strong fathers both dooms them to poverty and damages the economic prospects of the children. In the welfare culture, money becomes not something earned by men through hard work, but a right confirmed on women by the state. In other words, welfare payments go to the women. They don't go to the man. And boys grow up seeking support from women while they find manhood in the macho circles of the street are in the bar, are in the irresponsible fathering of random children. So everything about our welfare program is designed to undermine uh, the, uh, uh, the family and the importance of the fatherhood, the importance of, of the male in leading uh, his family. Here's another, if I said even that uh, I found just in my research, even more shocking is the fact that governmental agencies such as Aid for Families with Dependent Children, AFDC, offers a guarantee, now I understand the significance of this, the AFDC offers a guaranteed income 
to any child-raising family in America that is willing to split apart. If the husband and wife will separate, this government agency will guarantee an income to the mother and to the children. To guarantee an income to any family that's willing to split apart or to any unmarried teenage girl over 16 who's willing to become pregnant. The government will automatically guarantee a financial subsidy in either case. Now people, that kind of support comes straight from the pit. But that's the kind of thing that happens increasingly in a socialistic, anti-Christian, hostile to Christian kind of environment where Jezebelian influence and wiles uh, are being manifested. The last point we won't go into detail about is simply that with our increasing move toward socialism, there is uh, the confiscation of America's wealth and the enslavement of her people. This is the increasing tax load and the increasing bureaucracy and all of those things that go together with that. Uh, the scriptural example of that is old Naboth, this poor old farmer that had the vineyard that was next to the king's vineyard, good hard-working man who'd had this vineyard generation after generation and more than anything else just wanted to live a good hard-working life provide for his family and pass the vineyard on to the next generation but because of Jezebel and, and Ahab uh, moving into the situation Jezebel operating under Ahab's authority arranged to have him murdered and confiscated his vineyard uh, the same kind of things happening on a vast scale with the elimination of private enterprise and Americans wealth and their savings and all the rest let me just give you one uh, if this sounds exaggerated, just let me give you this one example about taxation. How far we have regressed from freedom towards socialist slavery is documented by statistics. Remember, by definition, a slave is one who works all day and receives nothing for his labor. Anybody find fault with that definition? A slave is one who works and doesn't get paid. The average American worker today spends the first two hours and 49 minutes of each working day to pay federal, state, and local taxes. Or stated another way, a man who begins to work Monday morning at 8 o'clock is a slave to government until 2.30 p.m. Tuesday afternoon when he finally begins to work for himself. Or to compute it on a yearly basis, the average American works the first 122 days of the year as a slave for the government. How much longer, we might ask, till all our freedom disappears and the government demands all our work, not for 122 days, but for all 365 days. Promising us, promising us that, of course, uh, care. We'll be looked after if we'll just let the government do it all. Finally, I want to recommend a book for you, to you by the former treasurer of the United States, William Simon, who was treasurer, U.S. treasurer under Nixon, who has written two books, one called A Time for Truth, the other A Time for Action. This little quote's out of A Time for Action. And if you want to have your blood boil about what's been happening to our nation and its loss of its Christian heritage and its freedoms, I recommend those books to you. Uh, Simon is not a religious man, but he's a secular prophet. And he makes this particular quote, uh, which struck me because I was doing this study on Jezebel, because he pinpoints it uh, without really calling it that, but it so fits into what we've been saying. He's summing up our willingness to let the government do everything for us. I was struck tonight listening to the news about the unemployment rate, 10%, and how everybody's squawking, they want the government to do something. The government's supposed to have all the answers. The government must provide. The government must look after people. And I wonder as Christians, where did we ever fall into that trap anyway? Uh, we're responsible before God for what we do. And God is to be our source, not the government. But here's this quote out of Simon's book. Our desire to achieve immediate gratification, to avoid responsibility, 
And having others care for all our needs is like nothing so much as infantile repression. And that, not too coincidentally, is exactly how Big Mother, down in Washington, likes to think of us. As children who cannot be trusted to think for ourselves, plan for our future, insulate our homes, operate our power mores, or do anything else that grown-ups are capable of doing. We are to be treated as helpless, self-indulgent infants who need a federal nanny to look after us every waking moment. And that's a pretty accurate uh, observation about the direction our nation has been going. But we haven't realized it because we haven't understood the spiritual warfare that's behind it. We're not wrestling flesh and blood. We're wrestling principalities and powers and rulers of this present darkness that have come against us as individuals, come against us as families, come against us as a church, come against us as a nation. All right, let me list just in conclusion now, just briefly, what are we supposed to do about this? Let me just suggest... What's necessary? First of all, we need to gear up for the war. We need to adopt a wartime mentality. Uh, many of you are too young to remember Second World War. I was a teenager in high school, got out of school, went to work in a war plant, and worked in a war plant all during the rest of the war. But I remember the mentality of our nation in the early 40s during that war. Nothing was more important than winning the war. People made personal sacrifices. There was unity in the nation. There wasn't fear, but there was a lot of unity and a lot of pride in our nation, a willingness to give up and to sacrifice and to pull together. We had a wartime mentality. And we need that in the church. We need a wartime mentality. That's not to make us afraid. Paul, the, the scripture says in the 23rd Psalm, David in his psalm says, Thou preparest a table before me 1,500 miles from my enemies. No. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. We learn, need to learn how to eat and to feast and to live and to enjoy and to work and to struggle in the presence of our enemies. We need a wartime mentality. doesn't mean we won't enjoy all the good things of God. But it means that we have to know that there's a war on and that there's an enemy that's still to be defeated. We need to gear up and to adopt a wartime mentality. We need to work to establish divine order in the home. We've already talked about what's happening in the families. Let me just give this exhortation both to husband and wives, especially if your home is not in order. and you, Some of you husbands, you haven't been leading the way you should. And some of you wives have been impatient and aggressive and you've wanted to push your husband into things or you've wanted to push him aside and do the things yourself. All for very good spiritual reasons because your husband's not doing them. Just remember this, later there's only room for one person in the driver's seat in the family. And if you're occupying it, your husband can never get in it. So you'll have to get out of it first before your husband can get in. But husbands, once your wife gets out, you get in. So whatever it costs, you husbands, if you... If you're not leading the way you should, you gird yourself up and begin to make the decisions. You begin to act like a man in your own house. And ladies, you begin to defer to your husband whether he's acting like a leader or not. If you'll begin, your husband will never rise any higher than your estimation of him. And if you think he's a nerd or if you think he's a weakling or if you think he can't handle the situation, he'll not handle it. He'll let you do it. So some things, ladies, you may just have to let leave undone until he will do it. If he won't pay the bills in time, let the utilities be cut off until he learns how, what his responsibility is for managing the checkbook. We can't, no need to go into detail about it, but all I'm saying is, whatever it costs you to occupy your subordinate role, ladies, begin to occupy it. And men, whatever it costs you to occupy your dominant leadership role, begin to occupy it and act like a man. Work to establish the right kind of divine order in the home. The third is to drive the enemy out of your own life. 
Now, I put that in there because we're going to be talking about that tomorrow night. How to come against the evil spirits and to set you and your families free from them. And the fourth one is we need to join hands and to join ranks with everybody else that's in the battle. I thank God for what I found since I got here in Rochester. I met with this group of ministers David was talking about this morning. The relationship that's developed between some of these men of God has become so precious to them. And I've seen it in other places where we need to learn how to pull together. The very group that's here tonight is an expression of the covenant that's binding them together. The responsible, committed relationships that they uh, have with each other. God spoke a word of prophecy to us in, in, in Mobile some years ago about the time was coming when while we'd been building in our own place on the wall, the time was coming when we would need to be joined to others who were building on the wall to rebuild the wall of the holy city. And that's what God is out to do is to join us together in unity, to unite us. There are certain things that God wants to do and to accomplish in us that will never be accomplished. There are certain things that God wants to do for you that will not ever happen. And there are certain things that God wants to do for me that will not ever happen. He will hold back doing those because He wants to do them for us. He won't do it for you. He'll do it for me. won't do it for me, but He will do it for us. Do you hear what I'm saying? There are certain things that God is reserving in the way of His blessing and His rule and His government and His authority and His dominion that will not come to the body of Christ until we learn what it is to all share together in the one blood covenant. And this is what we see happening with the development of these responsible, committed relationships between ministers and between congregations uh, all across the body of Christ. And I thank God for the army that he's raising up, which will enable us to be victorious in the spiritual warfare he's called us to conduct. Amen. Amen.